Hello and welcome to the Luxembourg History Podcast. My name is Tom Tutton and I'm your host for our first series. Today we're concluding our long-running focus on Luxembourg before the Grand Duchy. We'll look at life in the early county of Luxembourg, delve into how Luxembourg was governed at the local level during these times, and explore whether the 18th century really was a golden age for Luxembourg. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Over the past few weeks, we've covered the rulers of Luxembourg from the first Count, Siegfried, in 963 to the last Duke, Francis, in 1795. We've also explained the complex geopolitical situation that saw the House of Luxembourg rise to the top of the medieval game while the duchy became engulfed in constant wars for centuries. So today, we're diving deep into domestic affairs to see what life really was like in Luxembourg in medieval times. So as we learn, after the founding of Luxembourg in 963, a town started to grow around the castle. Over the next few centuries, merchants, artisans and peasants began to settle in the area, founding religious institutions such as St Michael's Church, while monasteries were set up in the surrounding areas. The early county of Luxembourg, which steadily acquired more and more territory from neighbouring polities, was marked by seigneurial relations between the ruler and his vassals, but things changed in the 1230s under the reign of Ermesinde. She introduced the first known charter of freedom to the inhabitants of the towns of Luxembourg and created new administrative and judicial bodies such as a council of advisers made up of the most important noble families in the county. Ermesinde and her son Henry V, through good governance at home, in effect set a platform for their descendants to rise to the top of the Holy Roman Empire. Meanwhile, the fortress of Luxembourg was in constant evolution, being fortified further by practically every count over the years. And the stronger the walls of the town became, the more confidence merchants and artisans had in living there, creating a new bourgeois class in Luxembourg. But the county of Luxembourg, then as now, was a border region, divided in a number of ways. Firstly, there was an increasing separation between the growing town of Luxembourg and the countryside outside of it. Secondly, the Count's acquisition of lands in modern-day Belgium and France, such as at Arlon, Thionville and Bastogne, led to the spread of French culture and language into the town of Luxembourg, while the rural eastern parts of the duchy remained firmly German in orientation. Thirdly, the territory was also divided between a number of religious authorities, from Liège to Trier and Metz, while churches continued to go up in Luxembourg itself, such as the Münster Abbey. And finally, the county likewise suffered from a difficult geography, split in two by the Ardennes Forest and lacking in navigable rivers other than the Moselle on the border. This combination of factors ensured that Luxembourg remained a bit of a backwater throughout the Middle Ages, a rural, underdeveloped, feudal and highly religious society. The rise of the House of Luxembourg in the period 1308 to 1437, however, led to the development of an early modern system of administration and taxation in Luxembourg. To finance their elections through bribes and fight long wars across Europe, the rulers of Luxembourg had to raise money by bartering with the increasing power of the bourgeoisie, who in exchange were granted a number of privileges and freedoms. These could be economic, such as exemptions from extraordinary taxes and the right to mint coins and collect tolls, but they could also be political, such as the right to elect a mayor and councillors or even judicial protections. Under Henry VII and John the Blind, the county of Luxembourg began to seem like a coherent territorial unit, with fortified towns and castles all around the central fortress in Luxembourg. And, for the first time under Wenceslaus I in the late 14th century, an assembly of estates was called to authorise new taxes. This assembly of estates would last on and off until the end of the duchy in 1795, and it was comprised of the three estates, nobility, clergy and the third estate. The estates quickly became so powerful that after Philip of Burgundy captured the town in 1443, 
it was empowered to legally recognise him as the sovereign Duke of Luxembourg in 1461. As part of the estate's recognition of Philip, though, he in turn promised to respect the ancient rights and liberties of the city, its administrative councils and its local institutions. For the next three centuries, through Burgundian and Habsburg rule, Luxembourg would be governed by three principal institutions. The Assembly of Estates dealt with taxes and politics. The Provincial Council of Nobles dealt with justice, religious matters and administration in the countryside. And the governor, appointed by the largely absent dukes, was in charge of military matters and raising taxes. This governor was usually foreign, but there were some exceptions. Jean Beck and Jean-Frédéric d'Hôtel were both Luxembourgish, while Peter Ernst von Mansfeld was governor for so long that he basically became a local, even building himself a massive castle in Clausen. Meanwhile, as one of the 17 provinces of the Netherlands, Luxembourg was also represented at the Estates General in Brussels or Bruges, but these largely stopped meeting after 1632. However, it remained quite distinct from the rest of the Netherlands, both before and after the Dutch Revolt, due to its geographical distance from Brussels, its poor transport links, and its lack of important centres of trade. So what can we say about life in Luxembourg under the Spanish Habsburgs? Well, sadly it just wasn't that exciting. By the 17th century, the town of Luxembourg had 13 guilds to Brussels 52, and a population of 5,000 to Brussels 100,000. Luxembourg had no cultural renaissance to speak of, and the printing press only reached it in 1598. But there was not much of a religious awakening either. The Jesuits arrived in the late 1590s, preventing the spread of Protestantism and leading to the renewed construction of churches such as the Neumünster and the Notre Dame Cathedral. It was by and large the same society that had existed since Ermesinde's rule, and things would not get better in the 17th century. As we've previously seen, the Franco-Habsburg rivalry led to wars and famines that devastated the population of the Duchy of Luxembourg right up until 1714. But in 1714, the Austrian Habsburgs took control of Luxembourg, beginning what has sometimes been remembered in Luxembourgish history as a golden age. So was there really a golden age in Luxembourg in the 18th century? And if so, what was life like? Well, we can learn more about Luxembourgish society with an analysis of the Assembly of Estates, which, as we've previously said, was split into the nobility, the clergy and the third estate. From the 18th century, to sit with the nobles, a person had to prove four quarters of nobility, that is, that all their grandparents had themselves been nobles. This restricted membership so much that by the late 1700s, there were only about a dozen nobles sitting in the estates, and the clergy were represented by an even smaller group the abbots of Saint-Maximin, Münster, Echternach, Orval, Saint-Hubert and Hufeliz. These six abbots were meant to defend the interests of the small clergy, the local priests and members of the various monasteries, but they largely just represented their own interests. The third estate represented the bourgeois. It was made up of 15 deputies, one each from the 15 principal towns, of which eight came from the French-speaking part and seven came from the German-speaking part. These deputies were often local mayors and functionaries, some of whom were elected once a year in their town, while others had assumed the role for life. It's worth pointing out then that the Assembly of Estates completely excluded the peasants and farmers, who made up around 96% of the population, but were not represented in the governance of the duchy. At around 40 births per 1,000 people per year, the birth rate was high but not extreme in the Duchy of Luxembourg. The average woman had four or five children, with only a third of families having more than six. And there are two principal explanations for this. Firstly, the average age of marriage was very advanced for the time in the duchy, at around 25 to 26 for women. This left rather less time to have, say, 10 children. And the second problem was that many women simply did not live long enough to have too many children, as so many died in childbirth. 
The death rate was very similar to the birth rate, nearing 40 per thousand, which explains why the population was so stable in pre-modern times. The plagues, famines and wars that had devastated the country in the 17th century did not affect the duchy in the 18th century, but it took a lot of time to recover from those catastrophes and overall the population had not increased significantly by the time of the French Revolution. The population, as we have previously seen, was concentrated in rural areas. Luxembourg was the only town of note with around 8,500 inhabitants. No other town had a population of more than 2,000. And life in the countryside was not easy in the Duchy of Luxembourg. The land was not very productive, especially around the Ardennes forest. Due to a lack of pasture, there were very few farm animals, which in turn resulted in shortages of manure, keeping agricultural production low throughout pre-modern times. Farmers mostly grew cereals such as rye, barley or wheat, but a bad harvest provoked by an early frost or marauding troops could immediately lead to starvation. That said, the 18th century was itself relatively free from famine, especially after the introduction of potatoes. Now there were certain rights in the countryside, such as communal pasture and the collection of wood from forests, but these were actually attacked by the centralising efforts of the Austrian Habsburgs under Maria Theresa and Joseph. Overall, this was an isolated world. Transport links were terrible, making it very expensive to transport goods, and most of the rural population largely remained where it was. In the towns, there were merchants of every kind, shoemakers, tanners, millers, brewers, smiths, etc., all of whom were usually members of guilds. But their production was overwhelmingly for local consumption, and there was not a great deal of trade passing through the duchy under the Ancien Regime. What we can say is that Luxembourg at the time was an extremely religious society. Daily life centred around religion, from masses to processions and even pilgrimages. With the Jesuits having arrived in the late 16th century, Protestantism had not made any impact in Luxembourg. The cult of the Virgin Mary was strong, as was the veneration of local saints, and superstition survived well into the 18th century, when women were still being accused of being witches. The Jesuits did create monasteries and other religious institutions which cared for the poor, but most of the Luxembourgish clergy were themselves poorly educated peasants and the Jesuits controlled education in the duchy after 1603, when they founded the Athenae, which has continued to exist to this day. Primary schooling was sometimes available, but it was voluntary and generally only in the winter, with children being employed in agriculture in harvest months. Most of the population therefore remained illiterate, especially women, and the enlightenment that was flourishing in neighbouring France did not reach Luxembourg. There were two local journals, but these were not widely read and they faced pressure from the Habsburg authorities. The Habsburgs did try to change the religious situation in the late 18th century, suppressing the Jesuits in 1773, ordering the closure of the monastic orders in 1783, and issuing an edict allowing Protestants freedom of religion. This proved so unpopular that it brought about the Brabant Revolution of 1789, and just six years later, the 441-year-old duchy came to an end with the French occupation. So was the 18th century really a golden age for Luxembourg, as it has sometimes been remembered in Luxembourgish historiography? Well, the short answer is no. Luxembourg remained a backwater, underdeveloped in its society, economy and culture. If this was a golden age, it was only in comparison with the horrors of the 17th century. The truth is that the real golden age of Luxembourg is unquestionably the one we are living through right now. That's all we've got for today, and that concludes the first series of the Luxembourg History Podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll be back soon for more on the history of this great Grand Duchy. This episode was written, adapted and hosted by Thomas Tutton, produced by Martin Johnson and brought to you by RTL Today. Hello, Josh here with some corrections to the credits. 
This episode was written by Thomas Tutton and produced by Theodor Georgiev.